All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome to OT with DA. My name is Pastor David Asherick, and we are now officially in the seventh, chapter 70 today. Am I right? Am I right? Is that right? Yes, chapter 70, the reign of David. Welcome to Instagram Live. Sorry, I'm a few minutes late. It's a little embarrassing. I actually cut myself shaving <laughs> just before uh, I was getting ready to come on and um, I had I was bleeding. And so I was like, oh, I, I can't go on with blood on my face. So I had to wait for the blood to stop. Isn't that funny? Anyway, a little embarrassing, but uh, it feels a little less embarrassing now that I told you somehow. So there is a good reason why I'm late and, and that's it. So, all right. Hello. <laughs> so glad that everybody's tuning in. We have a double header in store for you, and um, I'm excited. It's going to be great. Let's see. What are people saying here? Happy Sabbath, everyone. Somebody says, well, hi, I was wondering where you were. An hour late. Am I really an hour late? Oh, do you know why I'm an hour late? <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. I'm an hour late because last night... We switched, I don't know exactly what happened last night here in, I don't, I don't know the exact nomenclature to use, but our time went back an hour here. Uh, I don't know if that, if we reverted from or to daylight savings. And uh, I didn't factor that into my calculation because when I do my calculation, I add seven hours and that's the time that I get to mountain time. Anyway, oops, oops. Oops, sorry about that. Big mistake, I'm an hour late. And then I'm five minutes late because I cut myself shaving and I had to wait for the bleeding to stop. Man, it's just embarrassment upon embarrassment. I'm so sorry. I mean, clearly this is a professional operation here, right? And I have even more embarrassing things to tell you. Okay, are you ready for this? I have not yet figured out the drawing. So anyway, I'll... I'm going to figure that out today. So today, I will figure out the drawing, and then we'll have it on my Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter accounts. I, ha I had a, a full day yesterday, an amazing day yesterday, preached a sermon, had a great experience, then basically, what did I do for lunch? Oh, we had a big church potluck, had an anointing service, and then uh, walk on the beach, a bunch of people over last night, playing games. I got to bed later than I would have wanted, and I was thinking to myself, oh, this is great. Uh, I'm going to get an extra hour of sleep. But for some reason, it didn't register with me that if my time changes here, that changes the time. Not, not doesn't change the time where everybody else is, but it changes the time relative to where I'm at. I'm sorry. Embarrassed. Apologies. Um, yeah, we're in chapter 70. That's the good news. The, the good news is we are in the sevens, all we have left is chapter 70, 71, 72, and 73. And today's going to be a double header. Um, in this first session, as you can tell, I am by myself. But in our second session, which we'll do it just like we did last Sunday's double header, where we'll have a short break, I'll reset the camera, input a new uh, hard drive card thing, and um, then you can tell I'm very technical, right? Insert a new hard drive card thing. And then I'm going to invite one of my oldest son's closest friends to join us for chapter 71. His name is Luke. I cannot wait for you to meet him. 
He is a godly, wonderful, spirit-filled, exceptional young man. He also happens to be six foot eight or six foot nine. So we actually tested this last night when he was over and his head goes out of the screen. It's like up here. So I'm, I've got this tiny little stool that I'm going to make and sit on so that I don't have to change all the camera angles and everything. So that's going to be kind of funny. I mean, he's going to be like, anyway, you'll get to see Luke. That'll be in our next session. We're in chapters 70 today, 71 or 70 and 71 today. And then Monday and Tuesday, I've actually lined up at least one and maybe two more actual in the flesh, bona fide Australians. And uh, I can't wait. I can't wait. Anyway, I'm, I'm overcome with excitement. I apologize for being late. I'm so embarrassed. I mean, it's just a comedy of errors over here. But happily, we have two amazing chapters. One, as you know, a real mountaintop chapter. That's chapter 70, The Reign of David. And then the other, chapter 71, David's Sin and Repentance, a real low chapter, a valley chapter. And so we will have Luke present for that one. I'm actually looking forward. Luke is a young man, 19 or 20. I don't know if he's turned 20 yet. Can't wait to see what he's going to bring. This was the chapter he wanted. It's the chapter he selected. And uh, he is giddy about it. He was texting me this morning. We were talking about it last night. So I can't, I can't wait to see what Luke is going to bring. So um, yeah, apologies that I don't have the drawing figured out. But you know, you'll still have a couple days to get your name in. And uh, whether you're a first-time reader or you've read through Patriarchs and Prophets before, you can be enrolled in one of the many drawings that we will have. I'll talk more about that, I guess, tomorrow, or you can find it on my Facebook, Twitter, Instagram accounts. Apologies. I've just been going, going, going with Arise and then with church and preaching. And then I preached on Friday night and I had an anointing service and I preached on Sabbath morning. And yeah, I, I guess I thought I would have more time. And um I will admit, in the interest of full disclosure, I did get lured last night into about an hour's worth of games with some Arise students and former Arise students. I won, by the way. I won the game. So, yes, that's good news. But I probably could have spent that time figuring out the drawing thing. Apologies. I am willing to be forgiven. All right, let's uh, pray and get into this. The Reign of David chapter 70. I loved this chapter. It's a real high point before the low, low point of our next chapter. So I'm going to start with prayer. Welcome to YouTube. Welcome to everybody on Instagram Live. Uh, let's pray. Father in heaven, as we open the text of Scripture now and as we get into chapter 70, Lord, we're right here at the very end. I pray that your spirit would be in our hearts, in our room. Forgive us for our sins. Cleanse us of our unrighteousness. Help us, Father, to be in the righteousness of Christ um, present before you and pure before you and innocent before you. Father, we don't come in our own strength. We don't come in our own ability or wisdom. We come in the wisdom of Jesus. We come in the, 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 the innocence of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus. And so, Father, teach us, show us, reveal to us, and be with us now as we have a look at this amazing chapter. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. So chapter 70 is based on quite a, quite a number of passages here. 2 Samuel chapter 5, 6 to 25, and then 6, 7, 9, and 10. So a lot of material here. And this is another one of those chapters that covers 
a lot of material, right? Like it's this, and then it's this, and then it's this. But I found what I regard as a really powerful unifying theme in this chapter, and that theme is reflected in my word, which we will get to. So um, let's just go through this sort of right through it, beginning on page 866 of Types and Symbols. That's 703 of the original. And um, yeah, we'll go through, rather than itemizing all of the things that take place in this chapter right at the outset, because that might kind of give away my word. And I think that this is going to be one of those where like my word and the theme will become probably pretty obvious by the time we get to the end. I'll be really interested to see what your word was for this chapter because it's quite varied. And those are the ones where I'm always like, well, could it be this or should I do this? Or, But, but God really spoke to me personally about something here. And I was like, yeah, that's definitely God's word to me. And that's reflected in my word selection and then also in the rubric. So the chapter opens with uh, David desiring to seek, as she says, a more appropriate location for the capital of his realm. You might remember that the rival uh, you know, king and the war that went on between the house of David and the house of Saul with Ishbosheth was on the other side of the Jordan, and that was probably regarded by some as a, as a potential location for the capital, but it was never going to work. It was impractical. And so David's like, we need a location that will be uh, reasonable to everybody, right? That will be the, the best of, of all possible worlds from a strategic location, from accessibility. And so they choose a place that's, what, is it, what does she say here? Like 20 miles. I thought she gave some sort of, uh, let me just read the opening paragraph and see if it comes up in there because I thought I remembered that. It says, as soon as David was established on the throne of Israel, he began to seek a more appropriate location for the capital of his realm. There it is, 20 miles from Hebron, a place was selected as the future metropolis of the kingdom. Before Joshua had led the armies of Israel over Jordan, it had been called Salem, which means peace. Near this place, Abraham had proved his loyalty to God 800 years before the coronation of David. It had been the home of Melchizedek, which I thought was fascinating. The priest of the Most High God, remember all the way back in, what is it, Genesis 14, it says Melchizedek, a priest of the Most High God, king of Salem, king of Salem. So this is our location here. Um, it held a central and elevated position in the country and was protected by an environment of hills. Being on the border between Benjamin and Judah, it was in close proximity to Ephraim and was easy access to the other tribes. So it's a sensible location. And I've never actually been to Jerusalem. I've wanted to go there for years and years, but the timing has never worked out. And by the grace of God, it looks like uh, not this year, but next year, next year, 2023, I will be leading a tour, maybe with Ty Gibson. Uh, he has, I think, initially agreed to it, but it will be in probably late summer, fall of next year, 2023, and uh, that will be absolutely amazing if it happens, and I think it's going to happen. We're already sort of planning it, we're looking at dates, and it will be Israel, Jordan, Egypt. That's the tentative plan. Okay, so I haven't been there yet, but I cannot wait to go there. I've had so many people say to me, you have to go for this reason, this reason, this reason, this reason, this reason, and I want to go. I'm looking forward to going. So if you would like to join us on that trip, we would love to have you, but you'll need to stay tuned to my Instagram account, Facebook, et cetera, and when we get that you know, sort of locked in, closer to locked in, we'll let you know. But it's still, it's more than a year from now. It'll be sometime late summer, early fall next year, all right? Wouldn't that be great? Somebody's asking if that will be through Johnny, and the answer is yes, that's the plan. 
That is the plan. I love the way he does his tours. I've done two tours with him so far, and uh, he just is an A+. A+, at doing these tours, and his wife, Hannah, is an A++. So, yeah, you know, you know I'm going to do it with them, if at all possible. And as I mentioned, we've canvassed this idea, at least preliminarily, with Ty, and I've been saying to Ty, Ty, these tours are amazing. The Reformation Tour, In the Footsteps of Paul, you need to, you need to come. And uh, he said, okay, that's it. I'm coming. Oh, look at this. Hannah gives herself A plus, 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 plus. That's a lot of pluses, Hannah. That's a lot of pluses. I don't know if you're giving that to your husband or to yourself, but you guys do do an amazing job at your tours. And the plan is to go to Jerusalem, the very place where David here has opted to, to locate the metropolis of the kingdom. What does she say here? She says, amen, I received that. All right, so uh, the name was changed to Jerusalem because the victory in sort of, it was a stronghold uh, of Jebus or Jebus. And so they sort of combined the, the Je and the Salem and they came up with Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Um, so then uh, a couple paragraphs later, I'm on page 867, 704 of the original, it begins the increasing strength of Israel. The increasing strength of Israel in its union under David, the acquisition of the stronghold of Jebus, or Jebus, and the alliance with Hiram, the king of Tyre, excited the hostility of the Philistines, and they again invaded the country with a strong force, taking up their position in the valley of Rephaim, but a short distance from Jerusalem. David, with his men of war, retired to the stronghold of Zion to await divine direction. And then this is key. So David inquired of the Lord. And then in the very next paragraph, right at the end, again, David sought the Lord. And what ends up happening here is that God gives David wisdom and insight into the military situation, and he wins a decisive victory against the Philistines. We then find the next paragraph begins, God instructed David. Let's read a little bit of that. God instructed David saying, you shall not go up and circle around behind them and come up upon them in front of the mulberry trees, and it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly, for then the Lord will go out before you and strike the camp of the Philistines. Okay, so this is, I wrote in my margin here, very Joshua-like. This is like a, a kind of a renaissance. It's a reversion back to something resembling God's original plan in the conquest of Canaan, right? Like, I will go before you. I will fight for you. Trust me. Lean into me. Put your confidence in me, not in your military might, not in your wise generalship. Trust in me, and lo and behold, what happens? When David inquires of the Lord, when he seeks the Lord, they win a decisive victory. All right, well, now that that sort of chapter is behind him, and, and there's a little bit of peace in the land, fitting, of Jerusalem, again, shalom or Salem, meaning peace, then David has this, what Ellen White calls a cherished purpose. And that cherished purpose is, and I'm quoting now, I'm on page 868, to bring up the Ark of God to Jerusalem. For many years, the Ark had remained at Kirjath-Jerim, nine miles away, but it was fitting that the capital of the nation should be honored with the token of the divine presence. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so David has this passion, he has this desire not only is he seeking the Lord in a military context, now he is prioritizing the Lord. He's like, this is about God. This is about Yahweh. This is about the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are not going to 
go the way of the other nations. This is a radical departure from Saul, from Saul's uh, rule and government. David is obviously, very publicly, and very purposefully prioritizing God, prioritizing the ark, prioritizing, as we will see, the temple. And so he assembles 30,000 of the leading men of Israel, and they're going to bring the ark from Kirjath-Jerim to this new location in Jerusalem. And then that paragraph there, the paragraph that begins, David summoned 30,000 of the leading men, a little bit later says, David was aglow with holy zeal. I mean, can't you just see it? And then the next paragraph, the men of Israel followed with exultant shouts and songs of rejoicing, multitudes of voices, joining in melody with the sounds of musical instruments. And I just wrote here in the margin, wow, what a scene. But the elation of the scene, the celebration of the scene, the joy of the scene is brought to a quick halt, an immediate stop when, while the ark is being transported, the, the ark is on an ox cart and Uzzah reaches out to steady the ark and is immediately struck dead, smitten dead. And then everybody freaks out. All It's like, it's like the record player. And everybody looks up and says, whoa, what just happened? And this then is, you know, an instant, you know, uh, joy killer, right? It, it just puts a damper on the celebration, on the elation. And at the bottom of page 868, David is confused. David was astonished. This is 705 of the original paragraph begins, but when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, David was astonished and greatly alarmed. And in his heart, he questioned the justice of God. He had been seeking to honor the ark as the symbol of the divine presence. Why then had that fearful judgment been sent to turn the season of gladness into an occasion of grief and mourning? Feeling that it would be unsafe to have the ark near him, David determined to let it remain where it was. A place was found for it nearby at the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And so everybody, when this happens, when Uzzah reaches out to steady the ark and is immediately smitten under the judgment of God, which we'll talk about in just a second, everybody backs, you can just sort of see it in your mind's eye, everybody just backs slowly away from the ark. Like, don't get close to the ark. You don't know what could happen. And David's like, oh man, this has ruined everything. Why is the injustice of God? I mean, here we're trying to honor God. Here we're trying to praise God and celebrate God. Why has this happened? And so he goes back and regroups and they leave the ark there at the home of this Obed-Edom. And then he goes back and learns and studies and inquires of the priests and learns, for example, in chapters num uh, in Numbers chapter 7, verse 9, but to the sons of Kohath he gave none because theirs was the service of the holy things which they carried on their shoulders. So in David's study, in his inquiry about why this might have happened, because apparently he did not immediately know, they had known that the Philistines, after the ark had been taken and placed in the temple of Dagon, they had put the ark on a cart, but they didn't know any better. But Israel could have and should have known better, and my take on this is that they hadn't thought this through very carefully. And the judgment on Uzzah was a reminder, hey, 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 thank you for the enthusiasm, thank you for the celebration, thank you for the worship, but it has to be in accord with what I have expressly commanded. Because remember, the, the ark at, up to this point had been treated largely like a kind of idol, right? Like it was an idol, but it's not an idol. It's the, it's the, the sacred box that contains the law of God, among other things, but especially the Ten Commandments, 
that was the very presence with the mercy seat and the cherubim. It's where the very presence of Yahweh would reside in the context of the sanctuary. So it's not an idol. It's not merely a piece of furniture or some accoutrement of, of uh, you know, paganism. No, this is God's throne, or at least it's the emblem and symbol of his throne. And so you can't just approach it or treat it in any old way. And David comes to learn this. And when he comes to learn it, he humbles himself before the Lord. And she actually says that, that Uzzah had committed the sin of presumption. So I suppose that kind of implies perhaps that he did know, or at least that he could have known that it was not the right thing to do, that it was entirely unacceptable to just reach your hand out and, and steady the ark. So yeah, then what's quite interesting about this is that I, I thought this was a great use of this phrase. It's, a, it's an interesting juxtaposition. It says that when they brought the ark to the, to the, to the house of Obed-Edom, he rejoiced with trembling. Wow, that is a juxtaposition. Rejoiced with trembling. Friends, I like that as an attitude of worship, right? That, that there's rejoicing and there's celebration and there's elation, but we remember that God is not like your girlfriend. God is not like your boyfriend. And, and so much of worship today, I don't want to be un, unkind here or critical, but I do hear a lot of worship songs and I do see some instances of, of worship like on YouTube and other things. And I think to myself, how is this different than like a rock concert? And some of the lyrics, it's actually kind of hard to tell if they're about, you know, your lover or about God. And don't get me wrong, there, there definitely is uh, a sense in which uh, God is the lover of Israel. We are the bride and he is the bridegroom. And so some of that language, even romantic language, the language of devotion and of dedication, it's appropriate. But in my view, it should at least be detectable, like pretty obviously detectable. There should be a theological robustness where you know this is not just a song about your lover. And yeah, I, I think to myself, this idea of, of worshiping with joy, check, yes. Worshiping with, with elation, check, yes. But I love the, the seeming counterintuitive juxtaposition of rejoicing with trembling. Rejoicing with trembling. Because you have, even in scripture, you have this juxtaposition of do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. I mean, again and again and again, the text of scripture says, literally, fear not. Do not be afraid, like 400 times, right? But then you also have this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and fear God. And that fear is not a terror, it's not a horror, but it is a profound awareness that God is not a boyfriend, he's not a girlfriend, he's not an idol, he's, he's not a pet. God is God, he's the infinite, eternal, illimitable God of the universe, and he needs to be worshiped, yes, with joy, check, yes, with celebration, check, yes, with thanksgiving, check, yes, with enthusiasm, check, and with reverence, and with reverence. And so I love that. He rejoiced with trembling and welcomed the sacred symbol as the pledge of God's favor to the obedient. By the way, my personal view on this is that, that you can't be too enthusiastic and too joyful. I mean, God is that good. The gospel is that amazing. And Jesus is that wonderful that if we are overcome with enthusiasm and joy and happiness, maybe some people will say about us, 
what was said about the apostles when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them on the day of Pentecost, and there was so much enthusiasm and so much energy there as they realized, whoa, whoa, Jesus is not only our rabbi, not only our friend, not only our teacher, but Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, and he's now sent the Holy Spirit, and he was crucified, but he's resurrected from the dead, and wow, they got so excited that people said in mockery of their enthusiasm, oh, these men are drunk. These men are drunk with wine, right? That's what was said in Acts chapter 2. And the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, one of my favorite passages, he says, look, in our preaching, in our teaching, if we are beside ourselves, some translations say, if we appear to be out of our minds, that's for God. We're just so fired up, so energized, so enthusiastic about God's goodness that, yeah, sometimes we do, you know, get a little over the top. I got no problem with that. I would actually like to see more enthusiasm in most worship contexts and services. Yesterday, we had a beautiful worship service in the Kingscliff Church, and I was at the back just sort of doing some final um, transitioning of my slides to the AV, and the songs were so good, and the atmosphere was so wonderful that I was just like, I was clapping. I was celebrating, and I think I was the only, I think there was one other person out of the several hundred that were there yesterday clapping, but I, I, I don't care. You don't have to clap, but I'm clapping. I'm rejoicing. I'm on fire. And you don't have to worship just like I worship. And you don't have to sing just like I sing. You don't have to praise just like I pray. So I'm somebody who, there is no sense in which what I'm saying here, I'm trying to put a damper on enthusiastic, energetic, and sincere, sincere worship of God. No, I'm about that life. Whether it's a hymn or a praise song, whether it's a guitar or a piano or an organ uh, or a band, or worship singers, or just a cappella. I'm easy. I'm easy. It's just like I'm happy to eat almost anything. I'm happy to sing almost anything with God's people to his glory, right? It doesn't have to be my personal preference. I'm happy to sing Gaither style. I'm happy to sing praise song. I'm happy to sing a hymn. What? I'm happy to sing a psalm. I'm happy to sing a scripture song. I, I just don't think that's the time to start insisting on my own personal preferences, and, and in fact, that drives me crazy when people don't understand, hey, this is collective worship, this is corporate worship. If you have a certain kind of music that you love or a genre that you love or a song that you love, great. Get yourself an iPhone, get yourself an iPod and listen to it in your car or on your earphones. But here, why sully, why stain the thing that God is doing corporately and collectively with a sense of entitlement about your own preference? I've never understood that. I, I, it just doesn't make any sense to me. So in no way, shape or form, is what I'm saying here, trying to put a damper on enthusiastic, spirit-filled, theologically robust worship of God. I'm about that life. I'm all about that life. In fact, one of my favorite things to do is to pick up my own guitar by myself, sometimes with my wife. I'll say, sweetheart, come in here, come in here. You can ask her. If you ever see her, say, does David say to you often, sweetheart, come and sing songs with me? I'm always like, babe, come sing a song with me. She said, no, I'm busy. I've got to do some ironing or or no, I'm doing the dishes or something. I said, come, come sing a song with me. Very often, she'll say yes. Just the other day, uh, day before yesterday, we were sitting on the couch singing songs together. And when we sing, we don't sing quietly. We don't sing timidly. We sing with the spirit and with understanding. So that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that that joy, that that elation should be tempered with an awareness that God is not your girlfriend. God is not your boyfriend. God is not some, you know, idol. No, God is the infinite, eternal God of the universe, and so we should rejoice with trembling. Rejoice 
with trembling. So then check this out. Three months later, after David's, you know, sort of done his research and the priests have put their heads together and figured out, oh, okay, so that's what happened. They go back at the end of the three months and they basically do it again. They do the whole thing over again. And then right at the bottom of page 870, uh, 706 of the original, listen to this. Rejoicing now took, took the place of trembling and terror. Look at that. Rejoicing now took the place of trembling and terror. So the juxtaposition of rejoicing with trembling and terror and rejoicing knowing that without God's grace and mercy and forgiveness, that we would have sufficient cause for trembling and terror, that to me is the posture of worship. We have to hold in tension the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the do not be afraid, right? If we, if we, elevate or exaggerate one at the expense of the other, we lose that balance. We have to hold these as many biblical ideas. We hold them in tension. We, we keep them both in our hand and we don't let one eclipse the other. So that really jumped out to me. So now what happens with David is he wants to communicate that he is not above in any you know, ontological sense or any sense of superiority He's not above, he is equal with his subjects. In fact, right in that same paragraph at the very, very bottom, the last two sentences of that paragraph. But in this holy service, he would take his place as before God on an equality with his subjects because he, he takes off his royal robes and he adorns himself in the plain ephod of the priest. And she makes the point, not that he was acting like a priest. Remember, that's, that's one of Saul's big mistakes is that when Samuel tarried and delayed, he offered up a sacrifice. This is not what's happening here. David is just equalizing. We are all equal before God. And also, uh, also making the, the point that in some sense, he is a minister of God as the king, right? In, in some significant sense. He's not a priest, but he's a minister of God. And so I thought this was quite interesting. But in this holy service, he would take his place as before God, on an equality with his subjects. Upon that day, Jehovah was to be adored. He was to be the sole object of reverence. I like this, that David did not want his royal robes or his standing as king or his position to in any way eclipse what's really going on here. And everybody would have got the message. That's the point. Everybody would have, would have understood. Now, I do just want to say briefly that even in that sentence, there's a little contradiction. There's a little tension in that sentence. I'll read it again, the end of it. On an equality with his subjects. Well, that should sit a little off to you. Well, at least it did with me. Equality with subjects? I mean, I don't like the idea of subjects at all, but that's not the way it was supposed to be. The king of Israel was never, there was never supposed to be a king in Israel. And that king was not supposed to have subjects but fellow followers of the true king and the true ruler who is Yahweh himself. So even here, there's a little tension there that's supposed to sit a little off to you. You're supposed to go subjects, right? But again, different time, different context, different circumstances. There's no question that the people themselves would have, ex would have understood exactly what was happening. That They would have gone, oh, they would have seen it as an act of humility and of condescension, and I just love the idea that David didn't want to do anything to eclipse all of the praise and all of the glory and all of the attention 
that was going to God. Well, we can see here how different this is from Saul, right? Saul, the first king of Israel, self-exaltation and always worried and manipulating circumstances and situations so that he is perceived as a wise general and as, as, as the king and the monarch. David here is like, no, 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 no. It's about God, right? Saul's happy for, for him to be the one that they're pointing at and talking about. And David says, no, not me, God, not me, God. He's deflecting, right? It comes to him and boom, boom. I think I mentioned the other day, you know, I'm like rubber, you're like glue, bounces off me and sticks to you. Saul was like glue. He wanted it to stick to him. David's like rubber. He wants any praise, any affirmation, you know, any sense of, of ooh, that's David the king. He wants that to go boom and rubber bounce right off of him up to God, which I love. So then this, you know, well-known passage, David danced before the Lord and in his gladness, keeping time with the measure of the song. Ellen White then, and I think wisely, spends a paragraph talking about how we can't just use this as biblical license to say any and all dancing in any and all contexts is acceptable because David danced before the Lord. Obviously, she's stating the obvious here, there is a difference between, you know, dancing that implies or that leads to fornication and uh, unbiblical, ungodly sensuality and David's dancing, leaping, twirling before the Lord. Well, it's, it's actually kind of almost sad that she has to have that paragraph there because any sensible person would be able to know that just because the word dance can be used in both contexts, that that doesn't mean they're the same things. I mean, come on, let's use our brains. And so then she quotes here from Psalm 24. This is one of the great Psalms, which also applies to the ascension of Jesus. So not only the ark coming into its tent, but the ascension of Jesus, lift up your head, O you gates, your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Because the ark, remember, is the very symbol of the throne of God. A band of singers then answered, who is this king of glory? And then another company came, the response, Yahweh, strong and mighty, Yahweh, mighty in battle. Then hundreds of voices uniting swelled the triumphal chorus. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Again, the joyful interrogation was heard. Who is this king of glory? And the voice of the great multitude, like the sound of many waters, was heard in the rapturous reply. Isn't that beautiful? Yahweh of hosts, he is the king of glory. All this taken from Psalm 24. And this was not only written, composed in the context of the ark, finding its, well, getting closer to its final resting place in the temple in Jerusalem, but to Jesus' ascension, right? After his crucifixion and resurrection, he ascended. And in the book, Desire of Ages, one of the great chapters there on the ascension, she quotes this in this context. And so it's one of these typical, anti-typical, right? Shadow and substance psalms. It had an immediate application, historical application, and then it had a Christological application. Bam! So uh, jumping down a couple paragraphs there, I'm on page 872. The paragraph begins, all the tribes had been represented in this service. Let's just read that whole paragraph there. The celebration of the most sacred event had uh, the celebration of the most sacred event that had yet marked the reign of David. The spirit of divine inspiration had rested upon the king, and now, as the last beams of the setting sun bathed the tabernacle in a hallowed light, his heart was uplifted in gratitude to God that he blessed the symbol of his presence. The blessed symbol of his presence was now so near the throne of Israel. And so here again we can see that David's priorities are what? 
God, the elevation of God, instruction about God. Um, then David's, one of David's wives, right? As if he doesn't have enough, he has at least three. I've been kind of keeping track. Is it more than that? He has at least three wives at this point, which is a recipe for disaster. But one of his wives, Michael or Michal, who is the daughter of Saul, uh, she has seen David leaping and twirling before the Lord, and she rebukes him. And then I really appreciate that Ellen White says that her speech had an irony in it, right? She's, it talks about the irony of her speech, and then this is Michal's words to David. How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Well, that was the point. The point was to get rid of distinction. And so that's the irony there, like to say, well, you look just like everybody else. And David might have responded and said, that was the point, Mikhail, that was the point, that, that this isn't about a king, this isn't about a monarch. I, as, as, as humbled as I am and as privileged as I am to occupy this throne and this seat and this position, this was never God's plan. And so this wasn't about me, this was about God. <laughs> but what he says is actually stronger than that. I mean, what he says is really, I just wrote, whoa, in the margin. This is David's response to her. It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord. Ooh, talk about twisting the knife. I mean, he just goes in hard. He's like, yeah, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm doing me before the Lord, and I'm enthusiastic, and really what I am at heart is a shepherd boy who loves to play his songs and rejoice before God, and that is apparently, at least as far as God is concerned, what he's more interested in than what your dad offered. That would have stung, but, you know, sometimes in marriage you say things that are a little strong, or a lot strong in this case. All right, next paragraph. The solemn ceremonies attending the removal of the ark had made a lasting impression upon the people of Israel, and I like this, arousing a deeper interest in the sanctuary service and kindling anew their zeal for Jehovah. David then, in response to all of this, he had already written many songs and psalms before, but now he really gets to work writing psalms, psalms of instruction, psalms of celebration, psalms of humility, and then she makes this incredible point in that paragraph that many of these songs that were sung by priests and commoners alike, right, just ordinary people, actually served to insulate the people from idolatry, from the attraction of idolatry, and to, to kind of wage a war. This is fascinating. It lets us know that the primary war that, that we're engaged in is not a war with swords and spears and shields. The war that we're engaged in is a war against principalities and powers, right? That, that, that God wants to cast down not just literal strongholds made of stone and, and of walled cities, but the strongholds in our lives, the strongholds of idols and idolatry. And so David here shows that he can, you know, go seamlessly between winning decisive victories over the Philistines and then winning decisive victories over idolatry by his music. And this music contained instruction. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. We can begin to understand uh, further still why David was considered a man after God's own heart. He understood that this is a battle that's not just fought with steel. It's a battle that's fought with our heart and with our worship and with our devotion and with our humility before God. 
So then he gets this idea. He's like, we can't just leave the ark. I mean, here I dwell in this beautiful house and others in Israel dwell in these beautiful cedar houses. We can't just leave the ark in a, in a tent. And he gets this idea to build a temple. I'm quoting now, top of page 874, 712. He determined to build for the ark a temple of such magnific magnificence as should express Israel's appreciation of the honor granted the nation in the abiding presence of Jehovah, their king. And so what does David do? He communicates to Nathan the prophet and says, hey, this is my idea. What do you think? Again, inquiring of the Lord, inquiring of the Lord. He, he gets an idea and then he presents it before God, gets an idea, presents it before God. And even when he gets it wrong, such as placing the ark on the ox cart, he regathers, regroups, inquires, and then does it right. Amazing. And Nathan's response to David's desire is that God has said, do what's in your heart. So, so David starts, you know, assembling the, the resources to build this extravagant, magnificent temple. And then God says, yes, you're allowed to assemble the materials, but you will not be allowed. And I thought, this to me is amazing. You cannot build the temple. He's a man after God's own heart. But the specific reason that God says, you're not going to build the temple, though you can assemble the, the sort of raw materials, is because you are a man of blood. You are a man of warfare. And we see here, again, yet another illustration that God's plan was never for Israel's conquering of Canaan. And the, the primary role that God called them to was, again, not a warfare of steel and not a warfare of swords and of spears and of chariots and of, of shields, but a, but a warfare of casting out darkness by the light of the knowledge of the glory of God found in his law, found in his sanctuary, found in the, the priestly service, found in the annual you know, calendar, the, the festivals of Israel. That was the real war that God wanted them to be fighting. And so in a really, I think, cool way, and perhaps a surprising way, God says, no, 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 even though you're a man after my own heart, you are in some sense polluted by the blood that you have shed. And some of that blood that he had shed was unnecessary, I think, or, or at least not optimal, not ideal, maybe excessive, right? Like what he was going to do with Nabal, for example. So I, I really like that. And then what's even as amazing as that is that when David receives this message, even though he's a king, even though he's a monarch, when Nathan, I don't know if it was Nathan or if it was God directly that said it to him, but when he receives the message, it says that he received the message with gratitude. Wow. I mean, amazing. He's like, I get it. I totally get it. Why does David get it? Because David was in harmony. He was in tune with God's heart. And he thought, yeah, that makes sense. That totally makes sense. I'll assemble the resources, but the promise was given. You will have a son and that son will build the temple. So in a way, David says, okay, yeah, yeah. I still get to build the temple in a sense. My son will build it. And I just love the idea that he does this he just receives it with, with gratitude. He's happy. It was his idea. He could have said, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. This was my idea. But he knows that, that his strength, the joy of the Lord is his strength. His strength is in obedience. His strength is in worship, right? His strength is not in his position. It's not in his military generalship. No, his strength is in Yahweh. And that's what we see in this chapter over and over again. And then I love this part. 
And uh, years ago, I heard my good friend Jennifer, Jennifer Schwarzer, who has appeared on OT with DA and DA with DA, one of my very best friends in the world and one of my favorite people, one of the smartest people I know. Years ago, I heard her preach a sermon on Mephibosheth. And remember, Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan, who when they were fleeing, uh, his nurse dropped him at a young age and his feet were wounded and he was crippled. And Mephibosheth has been in hiding, fearing probably for his life, because in his mind, what he's been taught and what he has come to believe is that David is a usurper. David is an illegitimate king, and if Mephibosheth was found out, his location, uh, that David would kill him. And he's he's lame anyway, and yeah, he just... So, so David is literally sitting around, and it occurs to him, probably under the impress of the Spirit, hey, wait a minute, I made a covenant to be kind to the houses of Saul and of Jonathan. Jonathan makes sense, but Saul, I mean, Saul was your avowed enemy. Jo Saul threw a spear at you twice and a javelin once, right? Like Saul wanted to end your life. But David here, he's like, I just want, is there any way I can be kind? Is there anybody that maybe we've missed? And then he learns that Jonathan has this lame son, Mephibosheth. And I just thought, this is so beautiful. Bottom of page 875, 713 of the original. I want to read this because it's just too good. It's just too good. David in his covenant with Jonathan had promised that he should have rest from his enemies, that when he should have rest from his enemies, he would show kindness to the house of Saul. In his prosperity, mindful of his covenant, the king made inquiry, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? If David doesn't bring this up, nobody's going to think about this. This isn't going to be on anybody else's heart. Nobody's going to come to David and say, hey, David, remember, remember, you said you would be kind to the house of Saul. This is generated entirely by him. His magnanimity, his godly heart is on full display here. And he's thinking, surely there has to be somebody that I can bless. Surely there has to be somebody that I can pour out, you know, love on and blessings on. And then it's great. He was told of a son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth, who had been lame from childhood. At the time of Saul's defeat by the Philistines at Jezreel, the nurse of this child attempting to flee with him had let him fall, thus making him a lifelong cripple. David now summoned the young man to court and received him with great kindness. The private possessions of Saul were restored to him for the support of his household, but the sons of Jonathan, uh, but the son of Jonathan was himself to be the constant guest of the king. Wow, sitting daily at the royal table. Whoa. Through reports from the enemies of David, Mephibosheth had been led to cherish a strong prejudice against him as a usurper, but the monarch's generous and courteous reception of him and his continued kindness won the heart of the young man. This has got Christology written all over it, right? Like somebody that is fearing for their life and they're lame, they're crippled, they can't, they could never defend themselves, they couldn't help themselves, they look like they're cursed, they look like their life is going to be miserable. The king, in his magnanimity, reaches out to them, reaches out to him, brings him back to his own house. Mephibosheth thinks, oh, this is going to be a judgment. It's not a judgment. It's an invitation to receive kindness and wealth and generosity and, furthermore, to sit at his table. This has got Christ written all over it. And, and the sermon that Jen preached years ago, and I just loved that sermon, was just about how we are Mephibosheth. We, that's us. We're crippled and we're afraid and we are cursed. And the king invites us into his house not to harm, not to hurt, not to exact revenge, but to sit us at his table. Come on now. 
to sit us at his table and to love us and to treat us well. And, and then our hostilities and our um, prejudices and our fears are overcome by the beautiful magnanimity of the king. He wins us over. He wins our hearts. But the monarch's generous and courteous reception of him and his continued kindness won the heart of the young man. Bam! He became strongly attached to David. Woohoo! Just like we become strongly attached to our king, the king of kings and lord of lords. And like his father Jonathan, he felt that his interest was one with that of the king whom God has chosen. I mean, that is so Christologically significant. That, that he just felt that they had the same interest. There weren't two interests that were compatible. There weren't two interests that could tolerate one another. There was one interest. I mean, come on. It's just so beautiful. Ah, just thrills, thrills, thrills my heart. Then there's this kind of long section here. Let me just read uh, that, parag that next paragraph. 876, 714 begins after David's establishment. After David's establishment upon the throne of Israel, the nation enjoyed a long interval of peace. The surrounding peoples, seeing the strength and unity of the kingdom, soon thought it prudent to desist from open hostilities. And David, occupied with the organization and the upbuilding of his kingdom, refrained from aggressive war. At last, however, he made war upon Israel's old enemies, the Philistines, and upon the Moabites, and succeeded in overcoming both and making them tributary. So this has got this kind of Joshua-like renaissance, right? That, that in some sense, you can never go back What's lost is lost. The ink of history is dry. But insofar as it was possible, they could try and remedy or rectify some of what had happened with regards to the dispossession of the Canaanite people and the land that God had promised to Abraham and his descendants. Um, next paragraph says, Then there was formed against the kingdom of David a vast coalition of the surrounding nations, out of which grew the greatest wars and victories of its reign and the most extensive accessions to his power. This hostile alliance, which really sprang from jealousy of David's increasing power, had been wholly unprovoked by him. The circumstances that led to, led to its rise were these. And then, basically, the rest, a large part of the rest of the chapter was how all these nations start getting together, and I'm not going to go into that here. But there was, there was a hatred for David. There was a hatred for his power, for his influence, for his godliness, for his virtue. And this rallies Satan right? Because we don't wrestle, again, against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. This rallies Satan, and so they assemble this vast army to try and push back on David, but David wins decisive victory after decisive victory because, again, like Joshua of old, he's not fighting in his own strength and in his own ability. He's fighting in the strength. The battle belongs to the Lord. And then uh, right down uh, page 878, after this, you know, vast army, this confederacy against David is soundly defeated. Uh, page 878, just before she starts quoting from the Psalms, there's a paragraph that begins, this is 715 of the original, the dangers, let's read that, the dangers which had threatened the nation with utter destruction proved through the providence of God to be the very means by which it rose to unprecedented greatness. Wow, I love this. This has got that where grace, where sin abounded, grace abounded, much more feel to it. It looks like the very thing that's going to bring about the end of Israel becomes the means by which Israel is further elevated to greatness because God's plan, again, always was that Israel would not primarily be waging a war of 
spears and swords and shields and chariots, but waging a war of influence, waging a war of truth versus error and light versus darkness, right? This has got that Isaiah 60 feel to it. Arise, shine, for thy light is come and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. Behold, darkness covers the earth and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall arise upon thee and his glory will be seen on thee. This was the plan. And so, so David here can transition, as I said, seamlessly between waging the, the military sort of horizontal warfare and then waging the spiritual, what we might call vertical warfare against principalities and powers, against the rulers of wickedness that had occupied, not just the nations that occupied, but the, the demons that occupied this land. We talked about sort of territorialism a few days ago. And, and, and this is part of what makes David a man after God's own heart. And God can just bless that. God can prosper that. God can pour out his spirit on that because it's so in keeping with his heart and with his will and with his original intent in the Abrahamic promise. Bam, bam, bam. So then she quotes from all these Psalms, Psalm 18, Psalm 33, Psalm 44, Psalm 20. I particularly love Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses but we will remember the name of Yahweh our God. Psalm 44, I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me, but you have saved us from our enemies. And uh, let's now read the second to the last paragraph of this chapter. The kingdom of Israel had now reached its extent, or had now reached in extent the fulfillment of the promise given to, there it is, Abraham. So this has got this real renaissance, this patriarchal renaissance, getting back to something resembling God's original intent and purpose for Israel. We're not there, and we could never get there because there have been so many, somebody was giving me an illustration yesterday after I preached, and I thought it was a great illustration. Graham, a wonderful, beautiful man of God that I had the privilege of pastoring for seven years, and after I preached yesterday on Jesus and the tax collectors, he came up and he said, he, he told me this illustration that he had, and I thought, well, I'm going to use that. I I'm going to use it right now. So here's the illustration. He says, imagine you have a, a blank sheet of paper, right? Like a perfect blank sheet of white paper. There's nothing on it. And there's just no creases, no wrinkles, no undulations. He said, now you take that piece of paper and you crumple it up. And you just crumple it over and over again. And you crumple it as tight as you can. And you just crumple it. Okay, he says, then... That's what sin does to us. That's what rebellion does to us. He says, now imagine that you lay that paper out. And, and every day, let's say you come and you, you, you straighten the paper out. You straighten it this way and you straighten it that way. And, and even if you did this over, over weeks and you just kept straightening it, eventually the paper would lay mostly flat. And it would get flatter and flatter as every day you tried to... And then he made this great point. He said, but it could never be restored to its original condition. Right? Not, not by that effort. You couldn't ever get it back to that original state. It would still be flat. It's not all crumpled up. It's not a giant ball, right? But it, if you hold it up on the, on, and you look at it like that, you look at it on the side on, you'll see the angles and the wrinkles and the undulations. And if you hold it up in the light, you would see, wow, it's, it's nowhere near its original condition, right? It's far better than it was, but it, it can't get back to what it was unless the only way to do that would be to shred the paper completely turn it back into a pulp, and then remake it into paper. In other words, to create it anew, which has kind of got that Psalm 51 vibe, right? Like the create in me a clean heart, O God. And so, so even here in the return to something resembling God's original intent and purpose for the 
dispossession of the Canaanites and the occupation of that land by Israel, it's not a blank sheet of paper with no wrinkles and no crevices and no undulations. No, you can see crease, crevice, I mean, you can just see it all over. It's close, it resembles, but on closer inspection, you see, oh yeah, there's, this is well, this is well removed from and quite different from what it originally was and could have remained. And so let me read that paragraph again. The kingdom of, thank you, Graham, for that illustration, outstanding illustration. The kingdom of Israel had now reached an extent, the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham and afterward repeated to Moses, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, Genesis 15, 18. Israel had become a mighty nation, respected and feared by surrounding peoples. In his own realm, David's power had become very great. He commanded as few sovereigns in any age have been able to command the affections and allegiance of his people. He had honored God, and God was now honoring him. Second to the last paragraph. So let's go to our rubric now, and um, let's go through this. All right, what was the point of this chapter? I put to give an overview of the reign and accomplishments of David with a particular emphasis on his seeking the Lord and the wise leadership that resulted. And, and a really cool way to think about David's leadership is that it is really a stewardship of the trust that had been vouchsafed him to him by God, right? Leadership as stewardship is a really cool way to think about leadership, to steward the influence that you've been given, to steward the position that you've been entrusted with. Very cool. Okay, what do we learn about God, the person? I wrote, God can accomplish great and influential things through those who passionately prioritize him first and most and best. There is no limit to what God can do to those that put God first. Okay, and then the prayer, the prayer. I put here, Father, make me like David, my namesake, in humility, in creativity, right, with his beautiful songwriting that was instructive and that waged a war against idolatry in the hearts of Israel. Wow, I like that. Father, make me like David, my namesake, in humility, creativity, and in sincerity. Make me a man after your own heart. How do we practice this chapter? Well, I just wrote to not let zeal and joy eclipse God's express and unambiguous commands, and to stay humble. Right, thinking back to Uzzah, where the enthusiasm and the elation couldn't cover for a direct and inexcusable and presumptuous violation of God's express command. So I don't want to get carried away with my own, you know, my own stewardship of God's gifts to me and his blessings upon me and think, well, now I can start cutting corners. Well, that's exactly what's going to happen in the next chapter. David, in his prosperity and in his ease, is going to become, and she uses this word repeatedly in the next chapter, neglectful. She uses the word neglect. He's going to start cutting corners. And that's kind of what happened there with Uzzah and the ark. They cut corners. They hadn't, they hadn't thought to themselves, hey, wait a minute, enthusiasm and joy are not enough. It needs to be enthusiasm and joy coupled with, remember, they, they worship, what was it? Worshiped with trembling. Worshiped with an awareness that God is God. He's not your girlfriend. He's not your boyfriend. 
He's not some idol that you can pick up and sit down and move around. No, this is the very, the ark was the symbol of the very throne of God on earth. In fact, you could say it wasn't just the symbol of the throne of God on earth. It was the symbol of the throne of God in heaven. It was the throne of God on earth. You don't just get to go up and touch the throne of the Most High. And so I wrote here, to not let zeal or joy eclipse God's express and unambiguous commands and to stay humble. And then my promise was, first, actually from the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 6, 19. Let me just read these to you. Here we go. 3, 16 says this. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? God's spirit dwells inside of you. That's 316. Here's 619. It says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you and that you have received from God? Wow, this is a great way to think about it. We see the elevation of the importance of the temple and of the ark in the Old Testament, anticipating and a shadow of the true temple and the true ark that is in the heavenly temple that John saw in the book of Revelation. But the New Testament writers, Paul here in particular, but Peter also makes this point, that in some important sense, we are God's temple. We are, wow, what a thought. What a thought. And, and so we should have this simultaneous elation and joy but also, but also mingled with reverence and awe and fear, godly fear. What a promise. I mean, is there any promise greater in all of Scripture than that we are God's temple, that he inhabits, right? And Paul asks it with an almost air of incredulity. Don't you know? Don't you know that you are the temple of God? I mean, is there any promise greater than that? That God wants to abide in us, he wants to dwell in us, so that simultaneously can coexist that, that rejoicing with trembling, right? Keeping intention, do not be afraid, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because the, the sanctuary really communicated two ideas. Come, approach, but not just in any old way. So again, tension. There was the invitation. There was a door. The idea of the door was to come to the door, to come into the door. But you had to come in in a certain way, and I'm not going to go too deep on this, but to say that, that there's this give and take, this tension between the invitation, but the invitation to be accepted and received in the way that God has commanded, expressly commanded. So that was my promise. Now, I want to know what your word was. I think there's a lot of words that would work in this chapter. Oh, the verses, somebody's asking what the verses were. 1 Corinthians 3.16 3.16 and then 6.19. 3.16 and 6.19. I want to know what your word was, then I'll tell you what my word was, then we take a short break, like five minutes or less, and then, hallelujah, Luke is going to join us. I cannot wait. It's a difficult chapter, but it's going to be fun. It's going to be, in, in maybe not fun, it's going to be educational and instructive all right, here we go. What do we got? Providence, rejoicing, humility, fulfillment, reverence, reverence. Oh, reverence is good. Temple, Jerusalem. Oh, great word. Great word. Reverence, reverence. A lot of reverence. I haven't seen my word yet. Submission, honor, honor. Jim, good to see you, buddy. Says submission. Kendra says temple. 
Mel says, fulfilled a new inquiry. Brady says, mighty or honored? Another reverence. Oh, rebuke. Humbleness. X.S. Evans says, direction. Oh, I like that. I can see. I, I actually like that quite a little bit. Submitted. Humble. Trembling, says Reiner. Excellent. Dino says, moved. Gamein44 says, inquire. Pat DeCamp says, dancing. You knew somebody was going to choose dancing. Luke. Overcome. By the way, I love the word dancing in this chat. I think that's a great word. Overcome, gratitude, awe, humble, restore, center, kindness, boundaries. Nobody yet has had my word. Interesting. Sacred. Salem. Oh, another good word, says Brent. Very much like um, Jerusalem. I, I never think often enough to, to choose names, but a couple days ago, somebody had Jonathan as their word. I thought that was great. And I think Jerusalem or Salem is really great here too. Carl says direction. Nicolina agrees that dance is a great word. Totally, totally agree. That's a great word. Okay. Okay, here's my word was leadership. My word was leadership. Now, the word itself doesn't occur in the chapter. Um, she does talk a lot about the rule of David or the reign of David. Um, somebody says I was going to use strongholds, honoring. So let me just go through the, the 10 events that in when I sort of went back over the chapter, there were 10 things for me, from my perspective, through my eyes, that happened in this chapter. And every one of them was an opportunity for God to remind us of the beauty of uh, the, the beauty and the wisdom of David's leadership. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Um, number one, David chooses Jerusalem. That's, the, that's how the chapter opens. He chooses Jerusalem as a location thus prioritizing God, right? We need, to, we need to prioritize God. We need to find a place for the ark, a place for the temple, and a place that is, you know, easily accessible for as, as many of the tribes as possible. Okay, so number one, he chooses Jerusalem. Number two, right at the outset, when, when there's war waged against him by the old enemies of Israel, the Philistines, what does he do? Does he, does he run off to war because he's an experienced man of battle and he knows how to handle himself and how to handle his sword? No, he inquires of the Lord twice. Number three, then he's like, hey, we got to recover the ark. We can't just leave the ark and curge after him. We need to bring the ark back. Number four, he learns of the law after the death of, of Uzzah, and he learns about the ark regarding the, he learns about the law regarding the transport of the ark, and when he learns about it, he complies, setting a great example of leadership. He leads his people in rejoicing in plain clothes, setting an outstanding example of fundamental equality and of enthusiasm and of leadership. He's, he's setting an example of leadership. He's a servant leader. Okay, uh, next, I think this is number six. He wrote songs which taught Israel and battled idolatry, setting the example that we can use even our, our skills and our creativity to fight the real battle that needs to be fought, thus exhibiting great leadership. Right? He, he gave his people tools with which to wage a successful warfare against principalities and powers, against the enemy of God. Um, then he determines to build the temple. That's great leadership. He says, wait a minute, we are God's covenant people. The only reason that we're here and we've been blessed in the way that we have is because of God. How can we dwell in houses of cedar and not make a house for God? That's great leadership. It's pointing again away from himself 
as the lowercase king and to God as the uppercase king. He then is patient and understanding when God says, no, you can't build the temple. You can assemble the raw materials, but you can't build the temple. Setting an example that you don't always get what you want. Not even the king gets what he wants. This is excellent leadership. Okay, uh, number eight, or number nine, excuse me. He exhibits unexpected and not particularly politically advantageous kindness to Mephibosheth, right? Like there would have been nothing lost if he hadn't mentioned Mephibosheth or reminded himself of his covenant with Jonathan and Saul, but he he did that. And then it set an example about forgiveness and about reconciliation. And as we've already mentioned, it was this incredible moment of just Christological clarity. Jesus is all over that story of Mephibosheth. You know, we're wounded from birth and we're lame and we can't even get around and and we're living in fear, and we think that the king is against us. I mean, I've already gone through this, but wow, what a great example of leadership and of the humility and magnanimity of David to bring the son of Jonathan to his table every day. And then finally, last, uh, number 10, he exercised wise, wise leadership regarding the surrounding nations and his enemies, and he followed in lockstep behind the Lord, and God prospered his kingdom. So, When I read through this, I just kept thinking, this is a chapter, the lessons on leadership of which would help any leader in any context, help you as a parent in your leading, help you as a pastor in your leading, help you in your work, in whatever leadership capacity you have there, in your church, in whatever leadership capacity you have there. I mean, I think anyone could read this chapter. I didn't actually do this, but it might be a sermon worth writing and and doing, or maybe even a seminar worth preparing. Just a two- or a three-part seminar on the leadership principles from this chapter and the chapters upon which it's based in Scripture about David. I I, I think it's really there. And so my word was leadership, and uh, I thought you all had excellent words as well. I really liked the word Jerusalem and dancing. Okay, so here's what's going to happen. We're going to take a short break, and by short, I mean like five minutes. I've got to reset the camera here. I've got to get Luke's little seat set up. And um, so give me five minutes, and we'll be back on Instagram And uh, hopefully you can join us for chapter 71. Wow, this is a heavy chapter. David's sin and repentance. We go from the summit of the mountain to the very top of the peak, all the way down to the lowest valley. And uh, we'll be talking about that momentarily. So let's close with prayer. And I hope to see you on the other side. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the way that you give us opportunities to be the best versions of ourselves. Father, you teach us how to stewardship, and you teach us about leadership. And Father, help us to be that that rubbery, uh, like, to have that rubbery-like substance that David had. When Whenever praise comes to us, or, or an opportunity comes to us, or somebody uh, affirms us or compliments us, we just, we just, boom, we just bounce it to you. We say, well, it's all from God. It's all from him. Because of him, I have the talents that I have, the opportunities that I have, the resources and skills that I have. Father, we just want to get better and better and better at being a giant sign that points to you. Because, Father, we are like Mephibosheth. We we are lame, we are crippled, we are afraid, and yet you invite us to your table. And when you invite us to your table, Father, we want to make you famous. We want to sing your praises. We want to dance before you with enthusiasm. Again, an enthusiasm and a celebration that's tempered with an awareness that you're not just somebody's girlfriend or boyfriend. You're, you're not an idol. 
You are not to be trifled with. You are the infinite, eternal God. And Father, forgive us where we have failed to recognize you in that capacity. So Father, we, we just humble ourselves before you. We are the Mephibosheths of the world. And yet you have won our heart. Jesus has won our heart. And we long for the day. And we believe by faith even now that your interests and our interests can be not just compatible, but they can be one. Lord, give us that experience. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.